and probably not too many people noticed that our parliaments had enacted these laws giving such wide-ranging powers, not just to our health minister, who would be accountable to the parliament, but to an unelected chief medical officer and extraordinary power to issue directives that just control us in a way that perhaps none of us could have imagined could have happened. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm Assistant Director at the Centre for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University. And I work on political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. My guest today is Nicholas Aroni, who is Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of Queensland. Now, I think it would be a gross understatement to say that COVID has revealed many strange, uh, perhaps wonderful and certainly deeply troubling things about our politics, culture, indeed our national temperament as a people. One surprising revelation for me in particular, and I'm sure many listeners can relate to this, is the absolutely extraordinary powers that it turns out are at the disposal of state and territory governments. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Shutting businesses, closing schools, limiting movement, right down to a certain number of kilometers, uh, forcing people to quarantine and isolate, imposing curfews in one particularly egregious case in one particularly egregious state that need not be mentioned. And of course, closing state borders for long periods of time, replete with checkpoints and checking what are effectively de facto visas for people to travel interstate. And of course, all of the mechanisms for policing and ensuring compliance with all of these um, extraordinary impositions. And I've invited Nick on the show to uh, discuss the legal basis of these powers. But before we, we get into the specifics, and we will talk lockdown and all of the issues related to that, I think we need to go back a step and ask a more fundamental question really about the meaning of federalism in Australia. Now, Nick, in the introduction to your really excellent book uh, that was published by Cambridge University Press, the title of which is The Constitution of a, Federal Gov- of a Federal Commonwealth, The Making and Meaning of the Australian Constitution, you observed that the preamble to the Australian Constitution uh, notes that the people of the then self-governing British colonies in Australia, and I quote from the preamble now, unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth. And the operative word that's easy to miss here is federal. And uh, indeed, you go on later and elsewhere to describe federalism as the organizing theme of the Constitution itself. In that same introduction, you make this further observation, and I quote now your words. The Constitution does not establish institutions for the states or confer powers upon them. It rather assumes their existence and confirms that they will continue subject only to the specific measures adopted under the Constitution. Now, it strikes me, Nick, that in that observation you make there is a serious clue to the kind of extraordinary powers we are seeing play out before our eyes. Could you run us, give us a basic primer in how federalism works and is set up in Australia? 
Well, it's great to be with you, Jonathan, and I can't think of a better way of explaining federalism than in the way that you just explained it. I don't know whether that was because you were relying on my book or not, but uh, yes, I think that's the fundamental <laughs> I think principle. That's a good explanation, Nick. It's yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it, I, I think that's the way it's structured. It's quite self-evident that it is, and it's the way the framers of the Constitution understood it. Uh, the states, they were then colonies, existed before the Commonwealth and the Federation were formed. And it was the elected politicians who represented each of those colonies and the people of those colonies that decided to federate in the first place. And uh, at the time that they federated and they were went into this process in the 1890s, they'd already become self-governing colonies. And while they were formally subject to the authority of Britain, or the British Parliament and the British government to some extent, uh, the British government had recognised that they needed to be allowed to exercise local and independent powers of self-government. And they'd been exercising that for about four decades before they decided to federate. So it was a decision of the states to federate and they determined the terms on which they federated. And so they decided to create the Commonwealth, uh, but to do so on the terms that they determined, and that meant giving it specific powers, some significant powers and responsibilities, particularly to do with Australia's relationships with matters overseas or foreign affairs and those sorts of matters, and immigration and things like that, as well as matters that extend beyond or across a state border. But within the states themselves, they intended to preserve to each state its, capa its capacity to govern itself uh, as a people politically and democratically established under their own state constitutions. Uh, and that's the fundamental organising principle of the constitution. Uh, and perhaps not too many people are aware of that, but it is the reason why, uh, when it came to the COVID uh, crisis that we face, that the state governments and their responsibilities and their powers have waxed very large in the uh, public imagination and in reality, of course, as well. Nick, so let me run run by my sort of basic understanding and let me know if I'm on the right course here. Is the best way to think about Australia as a polity is of six sovereign states and now two sovereign territories, not enjoying quite the level of sovereignty that the states have, but more or less, and of course the territories come after federation, sovereign states that have ceded um, a certain amount in specific areas of the legislative power or scope or authority that they enjoyed before federation. They have ceded that, if you like, to a new uh, institution being the Commonwealth Parliament. And therefore, the, the uh, Commonwealth Parliament essentially exercises a jurisdiction and an authority within the sort of boundaries of the parts of the state sovereignty that the states have ceded, but the states continue in their pre-existing sovereignty in the new federal system in all of those areas, which it turns out I suspect are quite vast, vaster than I realized before COVID, that um, weren't ceded. Now, perhaps that's not a particularly uh, <laughs> elegant way to put it, but I'm just trying to make sure I understand exactly 
the way you are depicting the Federation and trying to ask it in the way that a listener might. Look, I think that's a good description of it. Uh, the only thing I probably would quibble with is the use of the word sovereignty there is probably a loaded word and, of course, a contested word. If you substituted the word general or, as lawyers call it, plenary power instead of sovereign power, it might be a little bit more accurate, although I'd need to explain what that means. When lawyers talk about plenary power, Think general power, a power to legislate as the government thinks fit. And we're talking about a government that's democratically accountable, but within that constraint of public and uh, political accountability, the parliaments of each of the states are able to legislate on any topic they consider needs to be legislated on. And the constitutions of the states don't restrict them very much as to the content of the laws that they enact. And that's just fundamentally different to the nature of the powers that the Commonwealth has in Australia. The Commonwealth, as you rightly pointed out, only has legislative power to make laws, that is, about specific topics and only on those topics. Now, those topics, some of them are very significant. So one of them is to legislate with relation to or in relation to external affairs. And that enables the Commonwealth to legislate uh, in relation to Australia's relations with other countries and to implement international treaties. And the Commonwealth also has power over immigration and emigration and aliens and therefore can control the entry into the country and things like that, which is very significant. Uh, the Commonwealth can also legislate on interstate trade and commerce, for example, because it's across a state border. But it's you've got to point to some specific topic that the Constitution says the Commonwealth can legislate on before you can conclude that the Commonwealth can do it. It's very interesting, Nick, because my recollection of this entire COVID period, if we go right back to February 2020, is that the Commonwealth government very much was driving and leading the policy and Prime Minister Scott Morrison was the dominant figure talking to the Australian public. And the, the amazing thing is, and I'm saying this as someone who lives in Canberra and is currently in lockdown, and this is only my second lockdown since the first national lockdown, but it was actually Scott Morrison that held a press conference and announced the policy that, that seemed to be his policy of basically going into a national lockdown. And of course, it was Scott Morrison and his government and the Commonwealth government that took that first extraordinary uh, measure of shutting the international border in Australia and perhaps just as extraordinary, if not more extraordinary, limiting uh, and curtailing quite seriously the circumstances in which Australians can even leave the country. But then uh, once the issue of schools raised its ugly head fairly early, I think that was in about April, because uh, and, and of course, Scott Morrison had established this national cabinet, and he seemed to be leading the national policy with the premiers and chief ministers sort of under his wing. And it was clear, at, I think, about April that um, the Morrison government, and I think Dan Tian was the education minister at the time, if I'm not mistaken, was very keen to keep schools open. And you may recall there was this whole debate at that stage about the impact of COVID on kids and whether the, you know, the importance of education, we all know how that went. And I think it was Dan 
uh, Andrews down in Melbourne, who first broke ranks with the National Cabinet Policy on Schools, closely followed by Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales and Andrew Barr in the ACT. And really from that moment on, once the states took the policy of whether to keep schools open or not out of that national process, they rose to the fore and Scott Morrison kind of receded to the background and almost became irrelevant for a large period there, particularly with that first big long outbreak in Melbourne and Victoria. And when suddenly Dan Andrews held his daily press conferences, I think for over 100 days, and suddenly became this uh, ginormous political figure. And then ever since then, we've been in the hands of quite disparate and often conflicting policies by the states and territories, clearly running their own policies. (laughs) Morrison has attempted to impose a bit of kind of control on this recently, as he's laid down the gauntlet about the whole 70, 80% and um, borders, but that's just by way of saying that we seem to come into COVID with a culture of a very dominant Commonwealth government. But after it took exercise those key levers of power that you point to that it has over immigration and particularly the borders, um, am I correct that it kind of ran out of things that it could actually do? And then once the situation started to vary and become particular to different states. So you had that big outbreak in Victoria and it probably didn't want to follow along with what the other states were doing. And now we've got outbreaks in multiple states with competing policies. Um, The states seem to really take over and almost discover their power. That's an interesting way of putting it. Look, uh, that is what happened, Jonathan. Uh, to, To really understand it, it has to be appreciated that there's several layers, even legal and constitutional layers to all of this. And uh, and so that on, on one hand, it might have come as a surprise that the states had all of that power to people, but the states always did have that power. And I'd even add the states always knew they had the power. And when it really came down to it, whenever they were in a contest with the Commonwealth, they're pretty minded to insist on their powers wherever they can. And the times that the Commonwealth has tried to push its powers to the outer boundaries and to exercise more and more control over the country, frequently the states have objected and mounted constitutional challenges to it. Uh, It is the case that in a lot of those cases over the course of the 20th century, the the recognised powers of the Commonwealth have increased while the and, and, and when that happens, it means that the Commonwealth can effectively, if it wants to, take over a topic or take over a subject matter. So one illustration of that is in the area of implementation of international treaties. Because uh, when you look at the list of powers the Commonwealth is given uh, under the Constitution, it doesn't have any power over human rights. It doesn't have any power over discrimination. But when the Commonwealth decided to enact a racial discrimination act at a Commonwealth national level. And later the next year, and this was in 1982 and then 1983, in 1983 when the Commonwealth decided to stop the construction of the Tasmanian Dam, the dam in Tasmania that the Tasmanian government wanted to construct uh, to generate electricity, the Commonwealth stopped it and it passed laws, uh, a, a law under the external affairs power on the basis of its of treaties that it had entered into to protect the natural heritage um, of Australia. And uh, the, the 
The state of Tasmania objected to the second of those laws in 1983, whereas in 1982, the state of Queensland objected to the Racial Discrimination Act and said, look, Commonwealth, you can't do this. You can't start moving into fields that we have power over. And the Commonwealth said, well, we can. We, we're implementing an international treaty and that falls within our power to legislate on external affairs. So it went to the High Court and the Commonwealth won on both counts. And that was pretty typical of a lot of cases through the 20th century where the Commonwealth found ways to regulate matters that people assumed were within the power of the states. And I think that's why people have tended to think that the power of the states has been waning while the power of the Commonwealth has been waxing large. But even though that's the general trend, nonetheless, the whole structure of the Constitution, as I said earlier, presupposes the states and their very broad and general powers. So wherever the Constitution doesn't address an issue, it's something for the states to do. And the states have always maintained their power over their education systems and over their hospital systems and uh, it's an outworking of their power over health and human welfare and public health, the broader concept of public health, that they're really exercising in response to this COVID crisis. They're just slipping into the regulatory powers that the constitutions give them. Um, and, and so it, it really doesn't come as a surprise to someone who's a constitutional lawyer that it should be the states taking the lead on all of these issues. Uh, there's a few complications about that, though, and that is that I think that while it is as the way I've explained it, the Commonwealth had enacted um, back in 2015 a Biosecurity Act, which actually gives the Commonwealth quite enormous powers over um, cases where or situations where there might be a pandemic. So if, um, if the chief medical officer, which is a, a federal Commonwealth minister, um, decides that there is an emergency because there's a disease that needs to be um, responded to, um, he can issue biosecurity control orders that are pretty extensive, about as extensive as the sort of uh, controls that the states have issued. He can make people, um, require people to be confined to their place of residence. He can force people to undergo examinations or decontamination. He can even require people to produce body samples or receive vaccination or treatment. Now, that's incredible, isn't it? It's only limited, it's limited though, to people who um, actually have the disease. Now, what's really interesting is the Commonwealth hasn't tried to exercise these vast powers that it's tried to give itself under the Biosecurity Act. And it could be because they're pushing the envelope of their powers too much because they they don't really have a power to legislate with respect to um, public health generally. And so they have to rely on other topics. And the one that comes closest is the concept of quarantine. They do have the power to legislate in relation to quarantine. But normally we understand quarantine as being uh, something that is done to a person coming into the country because that person has a disease and they get quarantined for a period of time because they are carrying the disease. That's very different from locking people into their houses or their homes when they don't carry the disease, but merely to stop them circulating in the community where they might catch the disease. Um, so the Commonwealth hasn't exercised the powers that it has, or at least it claims under the Biosecurity Act, but it might be because it's not so clear that the Constitution lets them get away with it. And so they've allowed the states to take the... the uh, the front running in all of these issues. 
um, and not try to dominate as much as they could have, which is a political judgment, I think, as well as a legal judgment. Yes, no doubt. I, I was thinking as you're talking there, just the the political challenge of trying to <laughs> assert that level of influence over the states when the states quite clearly have legislative powers in the sort of public health domain, as you say. But it, it just strikes me. I do want to get into the lockdowns specifically, but uh, that really was quite remarkable what you said because <laughs> that just shows that the Commonwealth, notwithstanding the limits on its power, the circumscription of its powers and the specificity set out in the actual text of the Constitution, can pass laws that are a little tenuous, if you like, in terms of their constitution constitutionality. That is, they can. I take it they can pass a law that obviously can then get struck down. So the way they can push the envelope, and I guess the way they have, as you spoke about during the 20th century, the way they have accumulated or, or expanded their powers is by just passing new laws, which then once they get tested in the courts, if they get... Um, if the judgment goes the way of the Commonwealth, then then that is the scope of their power. Is that kind of how it works? It sounds like a cat and mouse game where the the Commonwealth can just, it's almost like a, a sort of two-year-old child, can just keep testing the boundaries. <laughs> and if the courts let them go there, then they have that power. That's right. And I don't think people are quite aware of just how much the Commonwealth has pushed the envelope in the last couple of decades. So the Biosecurity Act is one of the big examples. Uh, Another example is the Commonwealth entered into the field of charity regulation a a decade or so ago. And it's quite questionable about whether the Commonwealth has a power to to regulate charities. But um, Kevin Rudd wanted to do it and he pushed it through the parliament and the law has been enacted. And the whole charity sector have pretty well accepted that the Commonwealth has passed this law that controls their behaviour. But Um, I think there are some real constitutional questions about whether the Commonwealth has the power to do that. And I think the same applies to the the Biosecurity Act as well. So it could be that partly the Commonwealth has been hesitant to use its powers because of that, uh, because of the constitutional question, but it could also be partly a political calculation um, because plainly a big part of the strategy, I think, that the Prime Minister has adopted is to use the National Cabinet as a means by which to try to get the Commonwealth and the states into agreement, to agree on basic policies to implement in response to the COVID pandemic. And uh, I think his hope is that by acting cooperatively in that sense, it might be firstly more effective uh, and secondly would not be characterised by as much disagreement or even constitutional challenges to what is being done. Um, So while we become very conscious of the disagreements between the Commonwealth and the states, and absolutely there have been some pretty serious disagreements, it also has to be recognised that the National Cabinet has been a pretty extraordinary development in our federation. Uh, The way in which the Prime Minister and the Premiers just got together and cut through a lot of red tape that used to exist in the way that they related to each other. Perhaps one way to put this into context is that one of the features of our constitutional system is that the first principle is that 
we think of each state as independently deciding what it's going to do as a self-governing community. And that's a fundamental principle. And then on top of that, you have the Commonwealth as a self-governing community and government deciding what it will do. And there's a degree of very significant independence for the Commonwealth and for each of the states in making policy decisions and implementing them. However, on the basis of those foundations, there's also a lot of scope in our system for them to cooperate if they can agree. And so uh, they do try to cooperate around a whole array of policy areas and say, well, look, the states will do this and the Commonwealth will do this and we'll try and achieve joint goals by exercising our respective powers in a manner that is well-planned and well-coordinated so that we each do our part to achieve common objectives. And look, to some extent, that's achieved uh, within our federal system, uh, although it has tended to be accompanied with an enormous amount of bureaucracy, which you have to wonder <laughs> about, uh, really have to wonder about. And that had started to clog up the system tremendously. Um, and so the National Cabinet was a break with that highly bureaucratized uh, set of uh, relationships that were largely organised around, you probably can remember the, the term, the Council of Australian Governments that used to meet, say, once or twice a year. And usually, you know, the Prime Minister would take control and the Premiers would be there and the, the heads of the uh, territories as well and even the local government association. And, you know, they'd grandstand a little bit, but they would form some agreements and they would try and cooperate to an extent. But the uh, amount of bureaucracy going on in the background was uh, pretty extraordinary. So the National Cabinet was attempt to cut through that and allow the leaders to just make decisions. Um, and the fewer number of people making decisions, the more efficient or effective it is, although the least it makes it less democratically accountable too. Yeah. Nick, can I just ask, because this is really interesting, If uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Cabinet and, and indeed the Office of Prime Minister um, are not even mentioned in the Australian Constitution. So the relationship and the mechanisms for coordination and collaboration between the states and the Commonwealth. Is this an area of policy and or convention? I'm just wondering what the, the language is here. That is, is this an area that is not actually determined by laws per se, but comes down to the various attitudes, strategies, relationships and approaches? Because part of our national conversation running up to here, I'm... I'm I, I recall virtually every prime minister that comes in comes in with a policy on federation. You know, one one of their pitches is always, "I'm going to make this damn thing work." You know, all the people that have come before me have have screwed this up, and that tells me there's quite a degree of freedom in the way that at least part of federalism works, notwithstanding the sort of formal independence and delimitation of powers. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of practices and a lot of conventions that surround our constitution. And uh, I'm, we're getting into subjects that usually take me 13 weeks to teach my students in constitutional law at the university. So <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty tempted, you know, the danger is I could go into so much detail around this. And uh, the risk is also that if I, you know, try to explain this simply, it, it sort of distorts the picture because uh, one of the things about the National Cabinet is it's not really a cabinet not in the proper sense of the word. Uh, when we speak of cabinet, 
like the state cabinet or the Commonwealth cabinet, the federal cabinet. We're talking about a small group of ministers led by the prime minister or the premier. And uh, they're the ones in whom the executive power of the state or the executive power of the Commonwealth is effectively controlled. Uh, it's vested formally in the Queen and exercised by the Governor-General or the governance. But under our system of parliamentary responsible government, governors are expected to exercise their vast powers on the advice of the ministers who are, hold seats in parliament, command a majority in the parliament, particularly the lower house of the parliament, and are accountable to the people through the democratic process. And the cabinet is a small group of those ministers that makes the most significant decisions for the government. And that's a recognised entity, as it were. Uh, it's largely built up out of practices and conventions uh, and rules that are not quite legislation or law in the strongest sense of the word. Uh, but nonetheless, the law recognises the existence of the cabinet and says that it has certain privileges and rights, as it were. And when we think of the national cabinet that's been created, it's not one of those because it's a collection of the prime minister and the premiers of the states, uh, and they aren't a government, as it were, and they're not collectively accountable to a particular parliament. Rather, they're each individually accountable to their own parliaments. And uh, what's more, of course, they come from different political parties, and if they were in the same parliament, they certainly would not be part <laughs> of the same cabinet, unless you know we're in a wartime situation and you formed a wartime cabinet. Um, and look, actually, you know, introducing that concept is really quite apposite here because there's a real sense in which the way our political system has uh, uh, developed over the last year and a half is very much a wartime sort of situation where an attempt to respond to what is perceived to be a very serious emergency has elicited a degree of desire to uh, cooperate across party political uh uh, divides. And uh, I'm saying that not rec not ignoring the fact that nonetheless, there's pretty bitter disagreement politically out there between the parties still going on. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a recognition of a common crisis and that there's a need to act cooperatively to tackle that crisis. Um, so I think it's a very interesting situation in this respect. Um, and, and we can ask ourselves, you know, how much of this is going to have a permanent effect on the way our polity runs? Or to what extent will this all just dissolve away once the crisis comes to an end? Um, and I, I'm not sure that we completely know the question, but we, the answer to that question, but uh, it'd be interesting to discuss that later in our conversation today. I definitely would like to revisit that question because it's a it seems to be one of the most uh, pressing and in, important. But let's, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into what I kept foreshadowing earlier. I just kept getting detracted because um, <laughs> what you were saying was so fascinating. And I just wanted to tease out a little bit more uh, this issue of federalism, just develop that foundational understanding. And I, and I take your point that... <laughs> You know, you're a, you're a careful and very erudite thinker, and so I'm forcing you to compress things that can't aren't, don't really lend themselves to compression. But you've done an excellent job so far. Let's let's go to the states now, and the, and the powers that I've described once, twice, maybe thrice already as extraordinary. 
the health powers, the health orders is a term we often hear. What, what are these powers? Where do they come from? Is it one piece of legislation? Is it a collection of legislations? Does it have something to do with the state uh, constitutions? What is the kind of architecture here that's going on? Well, look, the best place to start is with the state constitutions. And they say, pretty well all of them, in fact, all of them say this, that the parliament of the state has the power to make laws for the peace, order and good government of the state. Full stop. And what's noticeable about that is that even though the words for the peace, order and good government are used, those were words that were designed to... uh, describe a type of plenary power that I mentioned earlier, a power to just simply legislate on any topic that the parliament after deliberation considered was necessary for the peace, order and good government of the state. Very broad terms, in other words. And so constitutional lawyers say that as a consequence, as a first principle, the parliaments have plenary legislative power to legislate as they think fit. And look, in terms of the that the legislation or the laws that the states have passed, um, that that are supporting all of these public health directives that people in every Australian state are living with. Well, the interesting thing is that the laws that authorise all of these directives were enacted more than a decade ago in Queensland. The Public Health Act was enacted in two thousand and five, quite a long time ago. And it, at that time, conferred enormous regulatory powers on the chief health officer of the state, as well as the health minister. Um, Back then, it authorised the detaining and restricting of the movement of persons, directing persons to undergo medical examinations and treatments, a power to enter premises without a warrant and search for and seize anything a power to prevent entry into the state as well. All of these powers were enacted into law more than a decade ago, and they've been sitting there waiting to be exercised. And probably not too many people noticed that our parliaments had enacted these laws, giving such wide-ranging powers, not just to our health minister, who would be accountable to the parliament, but to an unelected chief medical officer, Um, and extraordinary power to issue directives that just control us in a way that perhaps none of us could have imagined could have happened until it did. So that's what they've done. They've exercised the powers that existed or were enacted into law decades ago. Although having said that, uh, it is true that in in Queensland in, in 2020, Uh, an amendment was made to the Act which gave even greater powers to the Chief Health Officer. Um, And the only restriction is, more than what I just described, she can give directions, quote, that she reasonably believes necessary to assist in containing or to respond to the spread of COVID-19. Full stop. Just stop and think about that any measure she reasonably believes necessary to assist in containing or to respond to the spread of COVID-19, including restricting movement of persons, contact between persons, and requiring people to stay at home, and any other direction she considers, quote, necessary to protect public health, full stop. 
it's extraordinary power that's been conferred upon her. You know, Nick, that makes me want to open up a thesaurus because I, I need a word that's somehow beyond extraordinary because that that just makes the situation, dare I say it, more extraordinary, remarkable, uh, astonishing even. So let me see if I have this right. So over the last decade or a little bit over a decade in virtually every, well, not virtually, in every state and territory, those parliaments have just busily gone about passing legislation that gives uh, sort of what's, what, correct me if I'm wrong, is sounds like unprecedented powers to both elected and unelected officials and really one elected official. I don't, I think I can honestly say I and probably most people hadn't even heard of the Office of Chief Health Officer <laughs> and why would we have heard of it prior to the pandemic? They did this a decade or more ago. I can only assume there wasn't a lot of debate or, or resistance at the time. I don't recall any discussion or and and that that is not inconceivable because I know at the federal level and as you probably know, Nick, I worked in counterterrorism for a long time in intelligence and I remember there being, you know, quite vigorous national debates about every little additional power given to ASIO and concerns about privacy and data collection and the power. So it's not like Australia as a community is beyond (laughs) um, being concerned about, certainly at the Commonwealth level, them getting more and more um, powers. And you may recall, Nick, that the whole consternation about the, the app or the whatever that bit of technology the Commonwealth initially issued to help fight COVID. There were massive privacy concerns. And yet, meanwhile, the state parliaments are just busily going on, making themselves effectively um, almost absolute monarchs. I'm using a bit of hyperbole, obviously. I mean, the, the, the obvious question is how? And I wonder if it just comes down to the fact that we are not as attuned to what is going on at the state level. I mean, our, nas- our our political attention seems to be sucked up mainly by the day-to-day happenings, going on, debates, political thrust at the federal level. Perhaps we tune into states every four years when we, we have an election. But as a serious question about democracy, is, is there less scrutiny and accountability when it comes to our state parliaments compared to the Commonwealth? Is that a reason why, one of the reasons why this has happened and we're all suddenly taken by surprise because none of us were watching? Yeah, I think that is a factor. And I think our very best journalists, uh, to the extent that we have good journalists, and we do, they tend to focus on uh, federal politics as well. I mean, there's some fine state-based journalists as well, but the other issue is that it's very hard to keep up with the incessant flow of legislation. Like, to give you a sense of it, the Biosecurity Act at a Commonwealth level, take a guess how many pages long it might be. How many pages do you think the Biosecurity Act would be? Oh, I couldn't even hazard a guess. You you don't want to, do you? I know. Well, let me tell you, it is 734 pages long. (laughs) 734 pages long. It, it gives you an idea of just the enormous uh, flow of legislation getting pumped out at both a Commonwealth and at a state level, which nobody is able to keep up with, not even the experts. So the, 
the, the Queensland Public Health Act, it's, it's, it's actually a much more modest act. It's only 397 pages long. <laughs> it's extraordinary. And it, I, I often use the example of the Income Tax Assessment Act. Does anyone, like it, it's actually, I think last, I think it was about 11 volumes. 11 <laughs> thick volumes. It, it, no, no, I don't even think tax lawyers and tax accountants know all of the law relating to tax in our country. So I think we, we really are seeing an explosion in legislation. And so it's just not possible to uh, scrutinise what's being enacted effectively because there's just too much of it being pumped out so quickly. And uh, even the members of parliament can't keep up, obviously, with that. Can you imagine being a member of parliament and trying to read hundreds and hundreds of pages of legislation um, being pumped out like that? And nobody can keep up with it. And, uh, and and I think that's a real problem for our democracy, actually. So, Nick, just uh, and not only keep up, but actually understand what they're reading as well, given yes, that exactly. they're presumably just skimming and trying to read quickly with all the other demands on their their time and, and pressures. I just want to I just want to stay on this point for a minute. I'm I'm trying to comprehend what what at some level seems incomprehensible that. I take it that because of the very broad powers, and you mentioned that kind of fundamental power that's in every state constitution that just almost gives them carte blanche, it seems, you know, the, the well the well being and welfare and peace and whatever it is of the of the society. Is is this in part a consequence? Like like I, I know that there there has been a kind of cultural shift. I imagine if we went back to nineteen oh one or in the case of the States, we went back to the mid and late nineteenth century, they probably were passing fewer laws. I'm pretty sure that is a trend. And there may there may have been kind of technological constraints on just how often they could meet and how much legislation they could even get through. And maybe that was a, a blessing, actually. But is it just that the because the powers are so broad and far ranging, and I'm just staying with the states for the moment, but noting that that <laughs> there is an element of this that's replicated at the the federal level, is it just that the powers are so broad that, in a way, does that incentivize the parliament to just keep passing ever and ever more laws because there's just little constraint on them? And in related related to that, I, I'm wondering in specifically when it comes to the kind of health measures that have been taken under these broad powers, the lockdowns and everything that's associated with them. I mean, where is the limit, if there is any limit? Because because one of the interesting things is just when you think you, you're living through the hardest lockdown possible, they find another measure that apparently is in their legal arsenal. <laughs> it might be a curfew or, or a... You know, they might go from five kilometers down to another, or you your exercise goes from this many minutes to to a lower level um, of minutes, or they they shut a new type of industry. Um, I mean, where is the end? I would do these kind of health orders, if that's the right term. Would they actually give one of these governments or all of them the power to literally say to citizens, look? We know this will be unbearably tough, but you cannot leave your home for three days, full stop. You can order food or whatever, but we're literally imprisoning you in your home and there will be police patrolling the streets and you'll get fined, maybe even go to jail if you go out of your house for even one minute. Like, I'm just wondering what 
where where the restraint comes in legally, if there is any? Well, look, they're, it's a, they're, they're all great questions. Uh, look, I don't think that the constitutions are the essential problem here. I think the essential problem is our cultural attitude to government, that we expect governments to solve our problems and people in government think, yes, we're here to solve all the problems. And so it doesn't matter what social problem arises. The reflex is let's legislate, let's create an agency, let's uh, tax people, uh, tax the population and use that money to fund the agency and give it the powers to make things better. And it sounds really good. Uh, It sounds really wonderful. But always the devil's in the detail and it always involves uh, the conferral of enormous powers of control and regulation. One of the things, though, to always bear in mind is, or at least to, to note, is that the one constraint on these powers is, and if we look at, say, the, the Queensland Act, is that the power of the chief health officer is to make directives which she reasonably believes is necessary. Now, that does make it possible for uh, cases to be brought in the courts where you argue that even though she might have believed it was necessary, she has to be able to establish that it was something that a reasonable person could have considered necessary in order to protect the community from a a serious um, disease. And... uh, and so for that reason, there is a, a, an inherent limit on the extent of these measures. So what's happened is that there have been some cases, I can think of a couple in Victoria, where people have brought actions before the courts arguing that, look, the directives go too far, that they're not reasonable or they're not necessary. And so one challenge was to the curfew. Because when you think about it, why is a curfew per se needed to uh, to control people's interactions when you'd think that the point is to just um, control people's interactions at any time? Like, what, why at night? It, it, it's a very strange thing to, to introduce, isn't it? A curfew. It's a, and, uh, yeah. and there was a challenge to it. But, but and, and I'll, I'll tell you about another two challenges and then I'll say something about all three. Another challenge was that um, the legislation says that the chief health officer is meant to make the decision. And that means that they're meant to make that decision independently as experts based on expert advice. But there seemed to be evidence in this case that the Premier of, the, of Victoria had already determined that this was the policy that needed to be introduced so that she was effectively acting on his directions. So that was another challenge uh, that was brought. And a third type of challenge was brought that the constraints prevented people from um, effectively protesting and exercising their political rights of protest and of free speech. And they said that the Constitution, and in this instance, it's the Commonwealth Constitution, protects for all Australians the right to communication about political matters. And neither the Commonwealth nor the states can make laws or implement policies that unduly interfere with political speech. However, all three of those challenges failed. 
Uh, and the reasons why they failed have a lot to do with what constitutional lawyers often observe about courts in crises. And that is that even though the courts can be uh, can stand up to government sometimes when they try to do things that are unconstitutional, the more serious the crisis, the more grave the situation is deemed to be, the much more hesitant the courts are to second guess the decision of the government or a decision by a government agency or a government officer. And uh, you can see that in these uh, challenges in Victoria, and you can also see it in the challenges to the uh, border closures that have been brought as well in the country. The, the court is hesitant to question the government and the court's hesitant to question the medical experts who deem it necessary to introduce lockdown measures in order to prevent uh, the spread of the disease. So there are limits in the powers given to the uh, chief health officers, but the capacity of those limits to really stop them from going too far um, is weak, particularly when there's a sense of crisis in the air. Um, so there's a lot of complications and a lot of factors to be weighed up in thinking through all of these matters. But I've got to say, I, it concerns me a lot. It concerns me a great deal, uh, the extent of these powers and the difficulty in holding um, governments and bureaucrats to account for their decisions. Yeah, and again, that all-important question about the long-term impact in the aftermath of this crisis period, assuming we ever get out of crisis mode, is something we, we will will tackle shortly. But there's still, I just want to pick up on a, on a couple more things just to make sure we fully tease out all of the, the threads here. So that, that's really interesting because what, what I, I learned just then is that the, the challenges are really proceeding on two bases, if, if I can put it that way. There are challenges specifically about the wording of the the acts at the state level, the reasonableness, the necessary um, clause, for want of a better term. But then the, separately, there are constitutional challenges, which are, I suppose, trying to challenge certain state policies on the basis that they um, contravene some kind of measure stipulated in the Commonwealth Constitution, and I, it's interesting your observation about the habits and attitudes of judges in crisis situations, and I suppose the judges are at a disadvantage when it comes to something like this, like a pandemic challenge, because they are not medical health professionals and or epidemiologists or virologists, and I, I imagine to some extent they are subject like most of us non-experts to, to the various competing voices out there talking about what measures do or or don't work but can i just i just want to this gets back to this question of constitutionality and federalism because i know the the very high profile clive palmer challenge which may have been the first challenge for all i know and that was specifically in relation to the western australian border closure and i think that was a high court challenge and the action um, failed. I'd be interested to hear a little bit more detail about what what the constitutional question was there and what the kind of reasoning for the judgment was. But can I, can I 
take it from the limited numbers of challenges, notwithstanding Australia's culture of not being particularly litigious vis-a-vis other countries like the US, is I'm just wondering whether the constitutional questions at the federal level are quite limited when it comes to these health orders. Is that one reason why we're not seeing as much uh, action in the courts as we are? Or is there actually scope for much greater action and it's just this is what we're seeing is the normal Australian culture play out where we just don't look to resolve our disputes in the courts as much as Americans? Yeah, Jonathan, I think it's a combination of all those factors and it would be difficult to really determine which is the more dominant or influential. Uh, It's an interesting question to even ask how you would work that out. But I think it's been uh, observed for a long time that Australian culture is not as litigious as American culture. But that's reinforced by the fact that the uh, the Australian constitution and the state constitutions don't offer grounds for constitutional challenge anywhere near as extensive as the American constitution does or the Canadian constitution or the European constitutions do. Uh, So it's a combination of those factors, I think, and they probably reinforce each other as well. Uh, And, you know, there's a very good essay, I don't know if you've ever read it, by Oliver O'Donovan called Government as Judgment, short essay in uh, First Things. And, uh, like, he really nails it on the head in that. I think it's one of his finest essays. Uh, And I think it's actually one of the best essays on political theology, I think, that I've ever read. And he points out a whole lot of things that explain so much of what we're facing because he he points out that, you know, before... Uh, the emergence of the modern state. Western culture just assumed that there was a law of nature and that all the different institutions of society organise themselves according to that law of nature. And because it's a natural law that can be understood by reason, it just was assumed that people basically knew what was right and wrong. And so judges would make decisions based on that common understanding of right and wrong and adjudicate disputes on that basis. But what emerged is with the the rise of the nation state, particularly through, you know, from the time of the probably 14th, 15th and into the 16th and 17th centuries, was that uh, the idea that the state would become a legislator re-emerged, the idea that it would actually make laws as opposed to merely discover or apply them. Um, really um, came into its own. And and O'Donovan points out that this has just grown and grown through the 19th and 20th centuries. And that's why our parliaments today pump out so much legislation, because they see themselves as legislators that make law as opposed to uh, courts which adjudicate disputes based on a a previously given natural law. Uh, And I think that explains a lot of the way, uh, the, the sort of situation we face. But it, but O'Donovan goes on to point out that our modern imagination can't think of any solution to this problem other than to set up some other power in opposition to the legislature. And so we look to courts to try to control legislatures. <laughs> Uh, and and that's and and we we find you know and and modern political debate modern constitutional debate is just focused on legislature versus court or executive versus court, 
uh, and you know most constitutionalists love courts and they think that they're the ones that are going to control the government, control the legislature and make sure that human rights are protected and that sort of thing. But it's because our modern mindset can't imagine any other form of social order that we're pushed into this sort of situation. And so, you know, on one hand, I, I like the thought to an extent of the courts holding governments in check and holding legislatures in check and constitutions controlling power. But on the other hand, I'm also conscious that there are just deeper cultural issues at stake here where as a population, we expect governments to do these things. And so we, we look to them to solve all of our problems. And uh, even though this feels so unprecedented, you know, it was already there in our DNA that the next epidemic that hit us, that looked like the sort of epidemic that could take many, many lives, we turned to the government and said, solve our problems, save us and stop us from dying. And governments have obliged. <laughs> that's that's really interesting, Nick, because what I like about it is it takes the focus away, not exclusively away, but well not away, it broadens the focus from governments, courts and legislative action to the citizenry and its expectations and demands of its representatives. And it makes them complicit in a way that I think we are complicit, but are afraid to acknowledge or even debate. And I think the the great evidence for what you are arguing there is the level of obedience and compliance you find in Australia. Because I've always thought Australians are quite a conscientious, law-abiding society. Um, I don't know if you're aware or not, but I'm, I'm married to a Greek woman. I've spent a lot of time in Greece and I speak Greek fluently. And... When I first went there as a very young man in my early 20s, uh, you know, I was, I was shocked at the way Greeks as a culture just ignore so many rules. There, it's a totally different situation where they, for all I know, they probably have just as much legislation as we do because it's a modern state and most modern democratic states seem to over-legislate. But there's a huge level of defiance of laws, small and large. And it just made me realize that Australians are a very conscientious, obedient lot. And it's been, notwithstanding a couple of protests, which have never really gotten to the levels of civil disobedience you find in America, for example, uh, I think our level of compliance and obedience really testifies to the fact that we really do want governments to take control, <laughs> tell us exactly what to do. <laughs> and there, and there's, there's a certain kind of person in Australian culture that I think really loves this and finds it reassuring. But I'm, I'm sensing a uh, uh, great concern on your part and you're a constitutional expert in perhaps what the long-term effects are going to be. And I, and I would like, like to invite you to talk a little bit about that. But I wonder to what extent as well this COVID situation is simply bringing to the surface a, a more fundamental underlying problem, some of which you have alluded to with the over-legislating and the, the powers and the, the cultural shift. Are we just learning now the sort of straight jacket that we have put ourselves in, for want of a better analogy, and I'm sure there are much better 
analogies or is this the kind of tipping point where governments have crossed some kind of threshold into a kind of pseudo authoritarianism as uh, some critics claim i think it's going to depend on how it all pans out and it's a little bit hard to predict uh, because you know i can imagine a scenario where because australia is lagging behind the rest of the world here dramatically isn't it? Like we've painted ourselves into a corner. I remember saying that to people a year ago. We are painting ourselves into a corner. Because I can remember a lot of debate was back then, you know, this time this last year was, you remember how, you know, people talked about the way Sweden was approaching things compared to, say, the UK and, you know, not having as many strict rules and just relying on people to sort of form their own judgments about their own protective Mm. behaviours and so on. And you know, a lot of debate about whether that was a better approach or not turned on, well, how will it pan out over the long term? It's not a short-term thing that you need to compare. You need to do a long-term comparison. Um, and I think, you know, we, you've got to sort of have a bit of a time perspective around this. So we're lagging behind the rest of the world, which is, you know, starting to come out of the other end of the pandemic in some ways, uh, to at least a large extent, mm. more so than we are. And so they are starting to open up more in the UK, for example. They're, it's only just been, I would say, in the last, what, would you say about a month that in Australia, again, we're starting to say we have to live with this virus as opposed to eradicate yeah. it. Um, and, of course, there's a whole conversation to be had about the shifting goalposts through all of this, but maybe won't go into that, but that's a, another <laughs> riling issue uh, that's been going on through all this. But so... I think it's going to depend on how it pans out. You know, it, it's going to depend a bit on the political leadership. Uh, I look. I'm not sure that I hold out that much hope for our premiers, but I, you know, if the prime minister can can exercise some leadership through this, he he could help to create um, a sense of political culture where the mindset is: look, we need to start um, ramping down these restrictions. And we need to um, get on with ordinary life again. Uh, but that's all going to turn on public perception and making the case to the Australian public. And, you know, the other thing that I thought of, you know, as soon as this pandemic came out, was that this was going to pose an unprecedented problem of public regulation for the governments of, the, mm. of Australia. Because... What they were going to start doing was telling us to stay in our own homes and stop exercising and stop meeting with friends, et cetera, et cetera, and close down businesses and all of this sort of stuff. How do you get people to comply with rules like that? Well, look, maybe we have been and maybe we are culturally a law-abiding people, but I think we shouldn't underestimate uh, the efforts that have been made to make people... Uh, realise how dangerous the virus is. And what I want to say here is I want to say, I say that in inverted commas because the thought immediately came to mind about a year and a half ago. This is perfect conditions for Plato's lie to be introduced into our culture. And you probably, I know that you would know about Plato's lie. The idea is that you have a noble lie that uh, has to be... uh, disseminated amongst the people for their own good. And it struck me that if you're going to convince people to accept strict lockdown requirements, you need to make them think that this virus could kill them. 
And I don't think our governments have been, you know, at all hesitant in letting us get the feeling that many of us could die if uh, we don't eradicate this virus from our midst. And I have to say I've been somewhat sceptical about that and have tried to just read the uh, the proper peer-reviewed literature on issues like uh, how many people really are likely to die if they catch the disease or if they catch the virus or not. And I find when I talk to, you know, clever people, you know, who with engineering degrees or all sorts of like accountants and that who, who I know who've not read the literature and, and, I, and they'll say things like, oh, if my father catches this disease, he'll die. Mm. And I had to explain to them that statistically for an 85-year-old, if you catch the virus, statistically 15% die, which is tragic. And that's why we do need to, to take special measures to protect the elderly and those who have comorbidities. But the fact that he thought it was just certain that he would die shows just how uh, confused people are about how dangerous the virus is, or how exaggerated the fear is. So I don't think that uh, you can see that uh, I, I don't take the view that we should ignore the virus. I think that it really does pose a serious threat to the lives of the elderly and those who have comorbidities and that we really did need to take precautions. But I think that at the same time, something of Plato's noble lie came into this and it was recognised that it doesn't really matter if people get exaggerated senses of how dangerous that is because it will just help them obey things that they should obey for other reasons. And, uh, and I think that's what's happened. And that's what makes it very difficult to unshackle all of these rules because so much of the populace just think that if I catch this virus, I'm going to die. And that's just not true. Um, and if you, uh, I should emphasize, if you're elderly or if you have a comorbidity, yes, you should be very careful. And if you know, you should be careful of not trying to pass that, pass the virus on to someone in that situation. Um, but there's a, an irrational degree of fear going on. I think. I agree completely. I had a really interesting conversation with my brother right back in about, I think February of last year at a time where there was a lot we didn't know and sort of panic was, you know, anxiety was setting in. I think the virus had entered Australia and it was spreading. No one really knew and we didn't really know what the measures were or how deadly it was going to be. And he he made an observation that I think is very profound that relates to what your, your emphasis on death. He said to me, as a culture and society, we don't know how to handle death anymore. And I, I think that's true of governments. I think... If we want to really sharpen the notion that citizens now look to governments to not only solve problems, but particularly to protect them from everything. So to ensure that the toy isn't going to fall apart and the child's going to choke on it, to make sure there's a guardrail at the edge of the cliff or a sign telling you the water's this deep. Uh, you know, governments, I think Stephen Pinker talks a bit about this, they're, they're in the safety business now and death is really and it this this point about death really feeds into a kind of post-christian uh society and development as well death being the absolute end of life is now the greatest evil and governments and i think this is a significant change from even maybe maybe 50 years ago now see 
one of their primary responsibilities as keeping citizens alive almost at, at all costs. And it, it's not just the health thing where, where you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just going to sound awful, but, but there, there is something surreal about, there was something very surreal to me about listening to Dan Andrews last year get up and say, I want to report the absolute tragedy of a 95-year-old woman dying in a nursing home. And I'm thinking, well, she would probably die naturally any moment, right? Because not many people actually live to 90, 95. And he's talking about death in a way that for me doesn't quite confront the reality of it. And this isn't to pin it all on Dan Andrews. I think he's just speaking the language of our culture. I think we fear death in a way that a couple of hundred years ago, you would grow up seeing dead bodies on the street because people die, they drop, they uh, work was hazardous, uh, there was warfare. And I think the if there is a noble lie here, it is death in the sense that because culturally people are now now so afraid of death and we, we don't want to stare it in the face. We want to pretend it doesn't exist. And it's usually hidden in our society. Like Governments don't actually have to talk about death much. I think death is the great hammer that governments can use to pressure people. And it's not just your own death. It's if you get this disease, you will infect your family and you will very likely um, kill them. And I think if you look at all of the things that kill citizens from car accidents to influenza to cancer to, to smoking, uh, we have, in my view, definitely overreacted to COVID. And I'm with you. A pandemic of this scale, the pandemic is infectious enough and it's deadly enough that some kind of serious government response is uh, necessary. And I think I'm even open to the idea of lockdowns. I think they they work if we define work carefully, as in simply slowing down what you probably can't stop. But of course, they come at great cost as well. But if my brother's right, and I think there's something to what he's saying, and I, and I hear some synergy here with what you're talking about, Nick, this all goes back to our inability to confront death and to expect governments to be in the death prevention business beyond their their capabilities. What do you think of that? Uh, I think that's true, although my mind's also going to the assisted dying acts that exist in our states now and is coming for the Queensland Parliament as well. But that's a different story because what's interesting in those acts is that just like our abortion laws, we don't say what we're actually doing when we yeah. enact those laws. <laughs> And it leads to all sorts of verbal you know, euphemisms and so on because we don't want to name death. And Sorry. so we call them end-of-life choices. <laughs> That's a shocking uh, euphemism. Isn't it? Oh, I yeah. just can't get over that one. Uh, and there's simply, and abortion know, is a health procedure. It is, and it's a termination <laughs> of pregnancy. And I, I wrote yeah. an article actually a year or so ago about the Queensland Act because because they insisted on using the word termination of pregnancy, they got themselves all tangled up when they tried to deal with situations where there were two babies in the womb and they wanted to authorise the abortion of one but not the other. The problem is that doesn't really terminate a woman's pregnancy, does it, because she's still pregnant with the other child. <laughs> and it, it, it's because there's an, an unwillingness to even use the word abortion uh, in these laws. So I think that even though we do have these laws that authorise killing and even deliberate killing, which I think is horrendous, frankly, uh, we don't call it that, do we? 
uh, we avoid the reality of what that what it really means, or we put it up in the back of the act so people won't notice it. Um, I could say I could go on and on about that, but look, another thing that I think is worth bearing in mind here is that the public health acts, as well as the biosecurity act, are designed so that they focus on a disease, a particular threat, because I think they were enacted with. Um, something like Ebola in mind, like a disease that does actually mm-hmm. take the lives of almost, you know, large proportions of people who catch it. Yeah. Um, and so they had in mind something of that sort of significance that would justify extreme measures. And so they authorised the extreme measures in, in response to something that does literally kill you know, 15, 20, 40% of the people who catch it, you know, something horrific like that. But the other thing that that, what that means is that it forces the chief health officer to just focus their minds on that one disease and nothing else and to say, what do we do to eradicate or control the spread of that disease? And what that means is they're not required to consider the effect on other threats to human health. And this is where it's very interesting to notice that some of the research that seems to be coming out about lockdowns is that one of their effects is that deaths go up after lockdowns not and through lockdowns, not down. And this is um, very carefully researched um, data, which is making sure that it's not confounding different factors. Uh, and it seems to show seems to show what people were saying about lockdowns is you've got to stop and think that when you lock people down, they're going to be less likely to go to the doctor when they're feeling a bit of chest pain. They're going to be less likely to go to the doctor when they feel an ache in their stomach. They're going to be less likely to go to the doctor and get some sort of cancer screen. Um, and this is putting aside all the other effects of a lockdown. Um, and so the jury is out. I think, as to whether lockdowns were overall for the, the, the health benefit of the community or not, all the health impacts considered. And that's not even considering the social impacts, the economic impacts, which are also need to be taken into consideration. But our biosecurity acts and our public health acts, they're all framed around a particular disease as a particular threat. And they confer the power on someone who is a medical practitioner whose only expertise is medical. And so it's structured so that you don't stop and take into consideration all the things that good policy should take into consideration before deciding to implement some sort of strongly worded control on on people's behaviour. So I think that uh, one of the upshots is going to be once this all calms down is that we're going to need to review these statutes, not only for the broad powers that they confer and the unchecked nature of them, but also the terms in which they are framed and the purposes for which these controls are placed and the people in whom we give the power. Because if you give this power to a chief health officer who is just medically inclined and quite fixated on one disease and not others, you're going to get imbalanced policymaking. And if they lack expertise across these other areas and don't have access to that expertise, then I think you're going to get very uh, imbalanced policymaking. And I'd like to see us review the acts at least to achieve better balance in them going forward. 
in the aftermath of all of these events. That sounds like a very good idea and something that the protesters who are sort of protesting the the lockdowns per se right now uh, might do well to channel their focus into building a constituency and support for having both a national debate or state-level debates and really doing a forensic review of these laws and their suitability. But I did just want to um, mention, Nick, I, I thought of an interesting parallel here because I, I, I think that the logic of the way chief health officers and other health professionals think, I also see in military generals. So the one of the reasons why we end up with fiascos like the second invasion of Iraq under the George Bush Jr. Um, administration is that when a US president says to a general whose sole task is to plan and execute um, military campaigns to defeat usually conventional military. And he says, what are my options to invade Iraq? He's going to get an option. He's probably going to get about three. And there's no doubt that they can execute that task because all the general has to think about is how you move troops, what kind of um, forces you need in the field, what the strategy is going to be. And then that that gets executed perfectly. And then suddenly you're, you're stuck with this disastrous security void and... Uh, law and order chaos because the general never thinks about that because he's not trained to think about that. That's not that's not his mission, his whole career. He's never had to worry <laughs> about what happens to the uh, food supply once you've defeated the army of a territory. And I think the health officers, a lot of the epidemiologists and the biosecurity experts, they have a single-minded focus on one thing. They look at one question, that is, how do we stem the spread of a disease? And so... The chief health officer is not not necessarily uh, equipped to think way up what are what are admittedly very difficult cost benefit scenarios. So, how do you factor in the potential, which seems more than a potential, an actual increase, likely increase in the rate of suicides, and particularly amongst younger people versus the elderly dying? How do you weigh up the the long term economic costs versus the short term uh, death. These are not. I, I can. I, I'm pretty confident in saying these questions don't come up in the courses when you're studying medicine and biosecurity and epidemiology. And when they are providing advice, they're they're looking at one thing: how do I squash this virus? And to be fair to them, they're probably offering advice which, under the terms in which they're asked to to provide it, makes sense. Now, if your goal is to prevent or completely minimize death from one specific pandemic, forget about all the other diseases that are out there, then you would pursue aggressive lockdowns and do all this. That is the right answer to the question. But the question is, are we actually asking the right question? I think it was actually Sam Harris on one, on his podcast, um, the name of which momentarily escapes me. I'm a regular listener. I think he made a very astute observation and, and he prefaced it by saying it's not a nice way to think, but we don't know how to actually cost a life. That is, when it comes to public policy, when you throw in all of the factors, the considerations, the interests, the goods, the variables, it's almost impossible to know what one life is worth. And therefore, it's, it's very, very difficult to make these evaluations of what the right level of response to a pandemic 
that has the characteristics of COVID. Deadly, but not as deadly as a lot of diseases. Highly infectious. A lot of people will survive, but it will kill enough people that you need to have some kind of response. But it's very different to make these these evaluations, and they're not nice to make, between how many 80-plus-year-olds you're going to lose versus how many young people might commit suicide because they lose their jobs or they're confined to their homes. And it's fascinating that that is one of the reasons why Clive Palmer lost his case that I don't think too many people know about. Oh, really? Yeah. So the the case, his case was that Western Australian locking itself down breached uh, a provision in the Australian Constitution, Section 92, that says that trade, commerce and intercourse between the states shall be absolutely free. That's literally what it says. And it's pretty unusual for a constitution to use the word absolute or absolutely <laughs> free. And he argued that this was a breach of that principle. Now, the High Court has said that when you ask whether a law breaches Section 92, it, you don't think absolutely free li- literally means what it says. The Commonwealth or a state, they, they're authorised to pursue legitimate objectives as long as they do it in a proportionate way. And so the question becomes, what's your objective and what's a proportionate measure to achieve that objective? And you know, everyone agrees that if your goal is to try and save human lives or to restrict the, uh, the spread of a disease, you know, that's a legitimate, legitimate objective, but what's proportionate to achieving that objective? And uh, evidence about what's proportionate has a lot to do with uh, what's necessary or what's effective to achieve that goal. And that means you need the evidence of an epidemiologist and uh, other people with that sort of expertise to sort of explain how the disease spreads and then the effect of a particular restrictive measure on controlling or restraining the spread of a disease. And so in Palmer's case, he, he brought it in the High Court, but the High Court remitted this technical question to a judge of the federal court who heard a whole lot of expert evidence on how the disease is transmitted and what measures would be effective to control its uh, its spread um, into Western Australia or throughout Western Australia once within Western Australia. And uh, what is very interesting about that is that the whole framework was around eradicating or eliminating or reducing the spread of this disease and not any other factor. And in fact, Justice Mm. Rangia of the federal court was explicit in one of the paragraphs in his judgment and said, and therefore we have not taken into consideration the effects on public health in other dimensions or on the social effects or on the effects on the economy or even just on people's liberty generally and their freedom. Uh, We're only focused on this particular medical objective and whether these measures are going to achieve your goals in relation to that. And because it was framed in that way, Palmer was on a hiding to nothing because the experts came back and Mm. said, these are the measures that are going to be most effective to achieve it. And we're in conditions of uncertainty and we don't know, because it's quite early in in the story, like it was in all this happened last year, you know we don't know exactly how this disease is going to progress, and uh, and in conditions of uncertainty, we need to take a precautionary approach, and uh, it's better to shut the whole state up 
just because it, it, it will stop the disease getting into the state. Um, and so, you know, Palmer was on a, on a hiding to nothing on that point and, and, he, and he lost. And the other thing that really concerned me was that the, the expert that the judge most relied on drew on a, on, a, um, on a study which had laid out a sort of methodology about how to identify and classify dangerous diseases, about how significant or dangerous they are and therefore the, the degree of measures that might be uh, justified in order to combat them. And of course, you know, the two main vectors are how transmissible the disease is and then secondly, how lethal or debilitating a disease is, right? And it's a combination of both of those vectors that really matter. Now, when you looked at the article upon which this expert um, relied, it was all about uh, the transmissibility of the disease rather than um, the virulence of the disease or, or how lethal the disease was. And because uh, COVID, as we all know, is highly, highly transmissible, no one's ever doubted that, uh, and because in at least a, um, a significant proportion of people if they have a comorbidity or if they're older than they're into their 70s or 80s or 90s, um, are likely to die from the disease. And still, we're only talking about percentages. Um, that was enough for this threat to be technically cl classified as highly dangerous. In other words, the most mm. dangerous category possible. <laughs> right now, that shocked me when I read that. And that the judge just accepted on face value that therefore this was highest category possible. And I was asking myself, well, where does Ebola fit into this? <laughs> yeah. Like, wh where do diseases, like, where does it, what about like um, rabies? What if we had a rabies infested? Like, if you get rabies, you're gone. Like, it's, it's one of the most dangerous uh, things to catch in the world, isn't it? Like it, there are some diseases that their lethality are just exceptionally high. So it seemed like the whole scale was wrong, but then that scale determined the way the judge in the federal court understood the expert evidence. And then the high court just accepted that those findings at face value. And therefore what the court reasoned was we are dealing with you know, as serious a threat as is possible. And therefore, what's proportional to responding to such a theory, serious threat is just about anything because the threat is so serious. So again, that feeds into this disproportionality. And I mentioned that, you know, you know, we, we encounter people in everyday life that have exaggerated fears uh, about the disease, about COVID-19. Well, here we have even experts and judges, I think, to an extent, buying into an exaggerated account of how how dangerous the disease is. Nick, uh, we're, we're kind of talking, we have been talking on, around, above, below, beside the issue of individual liberties and the proportionality, appropriateness of the response. We've covered a lot of legal territory. But of course, there are, there are two related hot button issues that are starting to come into focus now and that that is the question of vaccine passports and vaccine mandates now that we're in the vaccination stage of this um struggle to defeat COVID, whatever that's going to look like twofold question on, on the question of um 
vaccine passports and particularly the ability of enterprises to refuse service or access to someone that can't demonstrate that they are vaccinated and also the, the question of the ability and laws available to both governments and businesses to mandate that their employees or certain people get vaccinated. Uh, where, where do these issues sit legally? And I want to throw in an ethical question personally. I mean, what, where do you come down on these question, questions? Are these bad ideas in terms of our long-term uh, ability to remain a free and open society? Are there grounds in some circumstances, legitimate grounds for a government to pursue these actions? I, I think they're very dangerous ideas. The thought that you should need a passport to travel or to engage within your own country, I think is extraordinary idea. Now, one of the things is that, uh, and this is an example of how we adopt an idea from another country or another situation, and we don't really know much about it. But, you know, this idea of a uh, vaccination passport really is a European idea. But what's interesting about the European uh, certificates, and they're not called passports, and I think that's pretty important. They didn't want didn't want to call them passports because freedom of movement is a fundamental principle of European Union law. And uh, and so these certificates in European law work if, yes, you're vaccinated, but you're also entitled to it if you've caught COVID and therefore have natural immunity. And thirdly, if you've had a very recent test and it's been negative. Because there's a recognition in the European context that you've got to be proportionate when you introduce any rule that controls people's movement and freedom of uh, behaviour in that sense. And, uh, and I'm really concerned lest, you know, in the Australian context, we become fixated on the idea of A, vaccination, and B, passport as being a condition of movement in the country. Um, I think that's a chilling proposal, frankly. Um, now, there's a whole lot of issues that are further or beyond that that have to do with, you know, vaccination itself and uh, and uh, and its effectiveness. And I think the jury's a little bit out still about this. Um, but look, I think the other thing is just even personally, because you asked me what my personal view is. I mean, my father is 96 and my mother's, you know, a little younger. You know, my father falls into a super high risk category and I love him very much, you know. And he has been vaccinated and so has mum. But I talk to them and they say things like, but we're not going to live in fear and we're going to go out and do our shopping because you just can't be controlled by this mentality that I could die. And I, and I think that sometimes um, in our culture, you know, a lot of people will sort of bandy about this idea, oh, well, you don't care about the elderly. Well, I think, I think we've all got grandparents and we've all got parents that we love very much. And we all have friends and neighbours and loved ones who suffer from particular diseases that we want to protect. And I think we should. I, I think that we absolutely should be protecting them as much as is possible. But we've got to put it into uh, perspective. And that is that for people under the age of 50, uh, statistically, COVID has not much effect on them. Um, and there are very rare cases where it does. and. Uh, it, it is actually like the flu for people under the age of 50. It's not like the flu for people who have comorbidities or who are much older. 
but it's this lack of perspective about that. And, uh, and so I really do wonder about the wisdom of really expecting young people to be vaccinated when they don't have very much risk from a disease, bearing in mind that even though we use the term vaccination to describe the vaccine, it's, it's not your typical type of vaccine. Uh, it's a very different method of delivery. And uh, even though the evidence suggests that over the me short and medium term, there are some very serious uh, issues around complications, but they're not at the, you know, at a very high rate of prevalence, um, we don't know what the long-term impact of uh, these vaccinations are. And secondly, we're not even sure about their efficacy because it looks like people who are vaccinated can still carry the disease. And so their capacity to uh, contribute to herd immunity is quite doubtful, it seems. So I think we need to be really careful around this whole area. And uh, the problem is it's very difficult to obtain uh, independent, rational information about these things because there's hysteria on both sides, I think. I think there's hysteria on the side of people who are just exceptionally fearful about this. But I think there's also hysteria on the side of people that are profoundly dis um, uh, fearful of government uh, at the same time. And I think that it's, it's, never, it's not quite as bad as either side um, think about these matters. It's an interesting mirroring, isn't it? Because the, the narrative that comes out from the kind of anti-government side of this equation, which has really been animated by the, the whole... COVID thing, a combination of lockdowns and, and vaccines, they talk about the government like it is a pandemic. It's some new deadly threat <laughs> that wasn't there yesterday. Uh, and it, it really is eerily reminiscent of the kind of language and logic you hear from what I would call the, um, let's say, lockdown extremists who you know want us to be wearing masks for the next three centuries or millennium or something like that like that, like a total lack of proportionality that can't possibly be uh, right in in my view. Nick, uh, before we close, can I, can I just return back to the issue of vaccine passports and vaccine mandates? And, and again, just ask you, what what is the legal situation in, in Australia? It, would it be possible for a government to mandate that every teacher gets vaccinated. I know I don't think any state government has done that, but I just wonder what the scope of uh, legal power is there. And would some type of vaccine passport, which I take your point in Europe, just like with abortion and um, euthanasia, we'd come up with some weasel words to describe it to make it sound like what it's not. But would some regime like that be legal in your view in Australia? Uh, Jonathan, I'd have to look at it very closely, but my initial inclination is to say they could probably do it and they probably already have the power to do it by a directive mm -hmm. because the language of the statutes that I quoted earlier in our discussion is very open-ended and all that's sufficient is that the Chief Health Officer forms a reasonable view that this is necessary to protect public health. So arguably the chief health officer might form that view and if they do it could certainly be challenged in the courts and then it will come down to the evidence in part and the expert evidence about its necessity and about whether a reasonable decision maker could have come to that conclusion 
But as uh, one of the Victorian judges pointed out, uh, even though the introduction, say, of the Victorian curfew um, might have been a decision that a different decision maker might not have come to, right, in response to the same situation and the same level of threat, it was the sort of decision that a reasonable person could come to. And so one would have to wonder whether the introduction of a vaccine passport requirement might fall into that category as well, that some people would reasonably take the view they're not needed, but others would reasonably take the view that they are. And so, yeah, I think it. I, I think there's be a re, there's a real question uh, or a real possibility that the existing law already authorises the introduction of a government mandated vaccine passport. But you know, I, I'd have to look at the act pretty closely to think about it a little more. But that's my first inclination. And of course, I mean, part of the question is not just government mandated, but private companies or you know, uh, you know airlines requiring it or um, restaurants requiring it or department stores requiring it and so forth. And that, that raises different sorts of issues because these are ostensibly private organisations making decisions about you know who they contract with and who they allow onto their property and under what conditions. And I think that raises different sorts of issues and at a certain level is less objectionable. I, I, I think that I'd be really concerned that it's not good policy, it's not wise. I'd be worried about the harmful effects of it but it doesn't pose quite the same level of concern as if the government were to mandate the requirement. That's really interesting. I think a good place to finish, Nick, is just to ask very directly the kind of question we've been working towards as we perambulate it. That's a term you don't use much in conversation. Um and and this is not really a legal question. This is a kind of policy, political, and analytical question. So I, I appreciate that <laughs> a kind of uh, very diligent legal mind such as yourself may want to throw in some qualifications, which is, is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So qualifying caveat to your heart's content. Let's Let's take a hypothetical scenario where we are free of COVID, okay? And we don't need to um, speculate about how. Maybe we get to a vaccine rate. Maybe it mutates and it becomes less deadly, whatever the measure is. Let's say we get to a point where the the disease no longer poses the kind of threat to death for whatever reason that it does now. And, and whenever that is, one, two years, do you think Australia emerges from this situation unchanged? That is, do all these laws and all of these actions, do premiers just give them up because they are pretty specific to the sort of pandemic situation? So do we go back? Do you, What do you think the chances that we go back to the status quo ante are? Or do you think we are changed forever and that premiers and states come out of this more powerful and that this whole experience will, if you like, accelerate the kind of path we have been on to ever more legislation, ever more regulation of our lives, ever more powerful government officials, uh, reliance on expert device, device, advice. Um, I think that it's probably important to keep long-term trends in mind in contemplating a question like that because 
I think as significant as this COVID crisis seems to us, think back to, say, the global financial crisis of more than a decade ago. Interesting that nobody's mentioned that for quite a long time, have they? And yet, at the time, it was serious, wasn't it? There was a serious concern that the whole financial system globally could 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 collapse. And we've forgotten all about that crisis, really, haven't we? So I think we, you know, we we have a, a tendency in culture to lurch from one crisis to another, maybe. And I and I I really do wonder whether culturally we were primed for a pandemic with all of those movies about pandemics and all <laughs> of those. Uh, sort of terrible movies about, you know, some post-pandemic world, you know, where I am legend, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> like there, there are so many movies like that or other disaster movies that um, like almost like I think that we were primed to embrace this crisis. Um, so I think that's a, probably a more significant thing that, I would say this crisis will pass, and I think it probably. I, I, I'm, I'm not making a prediction because it's not my area of expertise. But from what I read of the ex, what the experts say, they say that these sorts of things do pass, and that, uh, in mm. fact, what happens is as different variants emerge, the ones that are less dangerous are the ones that tend to dominate the viral population. And so the, the, the disease might spread more or the virus might spread more, affect more people, but be actually a lot less deadly. And maybe the, uh, the, the evidence about the Delta variant is a bit mixed and I've, I've read some studies about it, but I've noticed that the British statistics seem to suggest that the fatality rate of Delta is significantly lower than the other variants. Mm-hmm. So... Um, now that's mixed up with the fact of vaccinations as well, so I think it's it's a complicated question. But certainly, it seems like the the experts say that um, you can expect that over time, less dangerous variants tend to dominate the viral population, and and that's why these things just pass. So I suspect it will pass, and it'll probably pass within a year or so. And uh, we're just a little bit behind here in Australia around that process, hmm. and we'll just move into the next crisis. The long-term trends, though, are that we expect governments to solve our problems. And so, you know, I can imagine there will be a review of the Public Health Acts and the Biosecurity Act, and maybe they'll be improved in the ways I've suggested they could be. But I also bet my bottom dollar that they won't become any shorter in length, but they'll probably become longer. And so instead of a 700, what did I say, 50-page Act it'll probably a thousand pages worth of of legislation. Yeah. Likewise, the the state act, and probably similar powers will still be conferred on chief health officers, but maybe they'll be constrained in different ways and be obliged to take into more things into consideration. And on balance, that'd probably be a good thing. Uh, but I think we got to yeah, I think we've got to think about these things in terms of long term trends. And the other thing is that like politics is always a pendulum, so. Even though we might be in a phase of like unprecedented government control over ourselves, you know, eventually when governments push those boundaries too hard, there often tends to be a counter swing against that. Uh, And, you know, that could well happen and governments might eventually pull away from actually exercising these powers. Um, You just never know. It'll be just interesting to see. 
uh, what the what the long term outcome is. But sometimes these things can take decades to work themselves out, uh, and it's very hard to have a very clear perspective about it right now. Uh, Jonathan, can I say one last thing that might be of interest? I noted that you um, earlier used a military yeah, analogy, and you you that came readily to mind because of the military language that we and the warfare language that we're using uh, in relation to the COVID crisis. Well. You know what shocked me was that when I read the two Victorian cases, I, I didn't know this, but the Victorian legislation and policy is set up so that the people who are the officers that make these decisions, this is their official title, Deputy Public Health Commander. Wow. Commander. <laughs> That's very militaristic. Just stop and think through that, hey. I mean, it, it just does reinforce that intuition you had about the analogy to seeing these things as a warfare and therefore these officers, they're, they're, they're sort of quasi-military officers. Commander, what an extraordinary yeah. term to use. Like, really, think about that. Like, what, what are they? Health commanders. So their role is to give issue commands in the interests of public health. That's extraordinary, if you ask yeah. me. Maybe the only other industries where you find commanders, I think I'm right in saying, would be police forces, militaries, and maybe fire brigades. Yeah, which are quasi-military sort of organisations, aren't they? Well, yeah, and they, they are. their missions entail a kind of hierarchical structure you know when you're trying to counter a protest to use a recent example you can't can't have an anarchical uh organizational model you need command and control and people that are um are going to obey but of course it is a very unusual and striking application to what are effectively um either academics or uh, government bureaucrats. I mean, there are no other government bureaucrats described as commanders, or even just the uh, health experts. And and it seems to contradict Nick the whole uh, notion of advice because when we watch the morning press conferences, which now run for about two to three hours, once you get through Scomo's press conference, Gladys's, Dan's, Andrew Barr's in the ACT, Palajay gets up and. <laughs> Mike, if one, they run for hours on the the ABC. Every single political leader has the same mantra. They're all singing from the same song sheet, which is, I'm just following the health advice. So <laughs> you've got these legislative powers that set these people up as commanders, and yet the political spin is, I'm just following the health advice. This is advice. It's the best advice. Uh Everyone, this is all. This is like government by advice. So this is a new concept that political scientists need to uh, investigate, which I guess is really code for government by uh, appointed and unelected experts. Well, I think yeah, and I think that really we need to think hard about this because what you're doing is you're combining two professions into one. You're taking the medical profession. Let's think of that. And you're combining it with the, as it were, the like the public servant, the role of the public servant. And what of those two roles dominates in practice when you combine the two together? You know, we like to think that the medicalization of it means that it's all going to be done for human welfare 
we're going to get that consideration that you know that trusted GP that we know so well gives us whenever we we're sick and we need treatment, uh, or is it more the uh, the role of the the bureaucrat as a public health commander that really takes over? And what we actually find is directives being issued, telling us what to do and what not to do, as opposed to providing us with treatments and advice that will help us live healthier lives. Uh, and you really got to wonder, I think, around that um, and about that issue. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The one thing that that's clear uh, that I hadn't even fully appreciated is just how many big and important questions we face as a nation, and that this would apply to America, Canada, New Zealand, UK, France, Germany, and many other other countries, this crisis, I think, has raised lots of issues that many of us were either blind to or ignorant of or not paying attention to. And, and really, we should have a very big open national debate about every aspect of this right down to the legislative level and, and cultural issues, our approach to death, our approach to health, um, all of these issues. And you've certainly provided a lot of illumination <laughs> not just on the legal side, but I've really appreciated your thoughts uh, at the ethical, moral, and more philosophical level. So that's all by way of saying thank you so much for coming on the show and having this conversation with me. I've really enjoyed it a lot, Jonathan. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege. Well, that's all for this episode, folks. If you like what you heard here, uh, please consider giving the podcast a five-star on Apple um, I'm on social media, Twitter and Facebook, so you can follow me if you want to hear some further pontificating about matters large and small. Details will be in the show notes, and I'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.